Colossians 2, we're going to read, starting in verse 24, we looked at last week, all the way through verse 23. Read this with me, if you would. Paul's letter and words to the Colossians. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we looked at this passage last week. This week, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, who are known sort of as the rural country bumpkin folks. A slave, there is not free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. At the end of Colossians 2, which we looked at last week, Paul addresses a second degree of deception. We're looking at three degrees total. This is the second one. Paul addresses, having bought into these everyday slogans, advice, philosophy, spiritual half-truths, we called Facebook advice, someone on the inside of this church is capitalizing and promoting a kind of system to use all of these things for a different kind of lifestyle. Paul's quoting this person here saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. If you do these things, don't do these things. You'll be extra content, extra satisfied, extra happy, maybe even extra pleasing to God. So he advocates this sort of spiritual nutrisystem, which Paul goes as far as to call self-made religion. We have these in our own lives, as we talked about last week. I'm going to review briefly the eight I mentioned last week. We all have our own systems, our own ways of doing things, our own lifestyle. And number one, you got the vacation system. All right, you devise your life and your schedule to maximize vacation, not just from the island maybe or from work, 
but from relationships, from God, from church, from yourself, from reality. You escape. You want to get away. And so you try to work your life to get away from those things. Another one we mentioned, the winning system. Right? Everything, maybe for you, is a competition. What drives you is winning maybe a, a football league, beating a previous time in a jog or a cycle. Maybe it's just a promotion, getting ahead, or just that thought, at least I'm doing better than. That would put you in this kind of system. Third one, the balance system. Achieving holistic balance by making sure every element of your life is present. Exercise, yoga, study, reading, social life, Jesus, church life, family dynamics, alone time, service, before a social system, being at the center of all your social networks, center of your family, the who's who in community. Maybe it's your kid's school, office, community group, circle of friends. Knowing what's going on in those and mix it up is incredibly important for you, and you will organize your life to make sure you're at the center of those things. Comfort and convenience. There's that system. Do what's most convenient, offers least resistance, provides maximum pleasure for minimum cost. Quota for change system. You want to see change happen around you. You want to see people change. You'll work for You'll say things. You'll encourage change. And if you don't see a certain amount of measurable change, it makes you miserable. If you find your identity in seeing other people change, it's a system. It's a self-made religion, albeit with good intentions. Seven, self-imposed morality. I mentioned a story last week. Someone mentioned to me how they don't really need the Bible or any authority in their life, but they just sort of do what feels right. And we, we miss the words, of course, the prophet Jeremiah who says that the heart is deceitful above all things. We can't trust necessarily what our heart is telling us. Number eight, the achievement system. You go through life with an implicit or maybe a real checklist. If you accomplish what's on that list, you have a sense of satisfaction, a sense of fullness. Now, I got ahead of myself a little bit last week, which I'm prone to do, by um, applying last week the right kind of system, the God-made system, which Paul speaks to this week. All right, so I sort of ruined the punchline a little bit last week, so uh, bear with me. But Paul reminds us of three things here, two things, and then there's a new thing. We're going to kind of this will be your guide for the sermon this morning, the message. Paul reminds us to, one, have a life system with a very purposeful end in mind. And we sort of started to talk about that last week. That's not new. Another way to diagnose whether your life system is, in fact, a self-made religion. Also not new, but what is new, how to best permanently do away with a faulty life system. One that doesn't work. One that ultimately produces death. So that's where we're going to go this morning. First, Paul encourages us to begin with the end in mind. A love for Christ and for others. When you're thinking about your system in life, how you kind of construct your life, beginning with the end in mind, love for Christ and for others. I'm going to work backwards here in this passage a little bit. Starting in verse 14. Above all these things, Paul says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
what Paul says here is a love for Christ and for others as your end goal is the antidote, the antidote that fights off deception, the deception of self-made religion. Love for Christ and for others as your end goal is the antidote. You can fight off that system. The word translated here in verse 14 binds, which binds is love that binds everything together. It was used also during Paul's time to describe the, the sinews of the body. Right? It, it kept everything together from falling apart. Now we're going to come back to this because Paul doesn't just offer love Jesus as the Sunday school answer to all your problems. He's going to get more specific, which is fascinating and challenging at the same time. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But secondly... What Paul gives us here is a way to diagnose whether your system is in fact a self-made religion. He's just beating us over the head with this. He he gave us some in in chapter 2. We're getting some again here in chapter 3. Paul reinforces it here by giving us two lists. Incredibly insightful lists against which to compare our lives, our life system. I'll explain what I mean here. First of all, you have in verse 5, verses 8 and 9, two basic categories of sin. Two foundational categories of sin, really. Look at this with me. He talks about putting to death what's earthly in you, specifically sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, covetous might be strange on this list. Wait a minute. Greed, wanting what someone else has, It's part of sensuality and sexuality. Yes, absolutely. To possess someone else, or even in your thought life, or in real life, to want what is not God-given is covetousness. All this falls under sexual or sensual indulgence. We have that on the one hand, and then we have in verse 8-9, through You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And do not lie to one another. So what we see in this list is the indulgence of the mouth and emotions. Right? When we get emotional, we get feelings about something and, and that overflows from our mouth indulging in verbal sin. So you got sensual sin, verbal sin. Interestingly, this actually parallels what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that male deacons should be known should be known for avoiding, on the one hand, sexual sin. It's interestingly, and, and he warns female deaconesses to avoid, on the other hand, indulgence with words and emotions, because he sees these two types of sin as ruining people in the body of Christ, and oftentimes are found in the different uh, genders. Now. My question is, does your system tend to produce these things? This list I just mentioned. Or does your system tend to produce what's on our second list? Look with me in verses 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness. Does your system produce humility? Does it produce meekness? Does it produce patience? Does it produce this bearing with one another and ultimately forgiving one another. I was prepared this week to say something, which I'm still going to say, 
And that is this, that our system is typically revealed as either self-made religion or a God-made system during moments of extremity. Moments of great extremity with things pressing in on us. And that is true. Our truest self, what we value, what we care about, comes out during such times. But if you ever notice, it's far easier to reassess your system, your way of doing things, your priorities, what you value during extremities like tragedy, like, like you know, a family member getting shocking news from a doctor, some sobering reality that hits you or someone you know. It's actually a little easier during those times, right, to reflect, reconsider your priorities, reconsider this life system you have built for yourself. And what I realized this week when my laptop crashed while working on this sermon, is that the system we cling to is most evidently revealed in moments of frustration. Moments where our system is not going well, is being frustrated, thwarted. If our system is centered around the things listed in verses 12, verses 13, then frustrating people or people who walk into our frustrating situation are still loved. On the same day this week, I had my laptop crash, and out of the blue, I find out my family no longer has health insurance. My laptop is mostly fine. All right, I still have to coddle it a little bit. (laughs) And regarding the health insurance, you know, I will be covered. My my family and I should. Should one of you decide you want to run up to the stage afterwards and take a shot at me? Like that, or just call me into the octagon later. Uh, I will be fine, you know, for the first million, I think anyway, you know, 250,000. So just avoid, avoid the face. All right, I don't think it covers cosmetic surgery. <laughs> so uh, just if you can avoid that, that'd be fine. But so anything that happens, we're covered. Literally at 5 p.m. on Friday, our insurance was reinstated. And the question for me was, does such frustration produce in me? a constant and very attractive list of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from my mouth. Or a compassionate heart, humility, a meekness, a patience, forgiveness. Frustration goes a long way in revealing our system. What about you? When you encounter frustration this week, did you indulge in sensuality? Did you find a mis- an escape? Did you indulge in verbal sin and let emotions spill out of you? If that's you, if you're the latter, you might be to the point where just putting God's love into your system, just kind of tweaking it a little bit so Jesus can fit in there, you might be past that. If you're finding that frustration is causing that kind of fruit, which is really rotten fruit, persistently, if you're, when planning vacations or to escape, it's really an escape to indulge in sensuality. If when you're with people, over time, you keep finding that you get closer to people, that it produces a bitterness in you, an anger, frustration, if social system is your thing, I mean, whatever it might be, if you're finding this persistent, 
indulgence in sin, that man, you might need to obliterate the system. Right? There's a time, as John Grisham once said, the time is now when your system has gotten to the point, when your life has gotten to the point where you find you cannot stop indulging in sensuality and emotion that pours over into your words. Paul gives us the key here. The key to killing your self-made religion is love your future with Christ. Love your future. Specifically in three ways. First of all, think about your future. Think. It comes back to this idea of learning Christ. Think, think, think about your future. Paul says in verses 1-4 through four here, if then you have been raised with Christ. So if you have trusted your life to Christ and been given new life in Him, raised when He was resurrected from the dead, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Just in case we didn't get it, he repeats the same idea. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your old life is dead. And your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. When we think about these things, you know what? Science doesn't do us any favors here. And I'm not talking about, you know, this, you know, evolutionary theory or naturalism or cloning or all the quote-unquote bad things about science from a Christian perspective. I'm I'm actually talking about the normally good stuff. Medical advancement and longer life expectancy. And we hear those words, you're like, oh, that, that, isn't that what we want, Ryan? <laughs> to some extent, yes, I agree. But people, because of this, and us included, we think triple digits now. We think that is going to happen or that's achievable. How difficult is it then to think about life after death when, when at your age, your biggest concern is likely uh, carb intake or whether or not you're going to use Propecia. (laughs) I mean, seriously, multiple careers, where we'd like to live, when to start, stop having kids, all these options are now before us. We have this long life likely ahead of us. In Paul's day, you're looking at a 29-year-old life expectancy. 29 years old. And that's if you weren't birthing children. I mean, if you woke up with a runny nose or touched your eye, with, you know, the wrong hand. <laughs> you could say, this is it. Like, today could be the day. This is the week I'm going to be with Jesus. Short, 29. When your midlife crisis is age 15, right, you, you start, you think about a longer life beyond this one, beyond this shorter one. Spent three mornings this week intentionally looking at this passage and, and I tried to spend 15 to 20 minutes each of these mornings thinking and meditating on just my future life with Jesus. This glorified body, being with Him. And to be honest, I I succeeded, quote-unquote, one of those days. One of the three. In baseball, that's pretty good. But uh, in a discipline in life, maybe not so much. The other two days, I was surprised how much my heart and my mind wanted to cling to, Paul says, these earthly things. I just, I just had things going on in my life I just wanted to think about and be a part of. Think about that. Just take time to do that this week. 
And if you have done that, I sympathize, I understand, I recognize what I'm asking because I myself doubted here what Paul was asking. But one day, the one day I did, God granted me the grace to really think on and take pleasure in the life to come with him. And I saw the brilliance of verses 1 through 4 here, what Paul says. Paul's strategy for putting to death already perishing life systems is also the central plea of this message. Say that again. Paul's strategy for putting to death these things that are already perishing. Remember he says earlier in chapter 2, these things are perishing. How do you kill what's already going to perish? How do you euthanize it? How do you kill what's already dying? How do you go Kevorkian on it? <laughs> All right, You seek and set your minds on the things above. If we have found that accomplishments don't give you self-worth, if you find that the feeling of, of winning dissipates, if you find that a balanced life only helps until frustration returns, if you've never felt enough comfort, enough pleasure, I suggest that C.S. Lewis is right when he once said that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. How can you actually start doing this? How do you think about the future? A future with Jesus? First of all, consider every major or minor joy in your life a hint or a signpost pointing to future joy. Every, every earthly joy, a signpost pointing to future joy. Scripture rants about this. It's full of these examples of earthly, little earthly joys that are examples of Revelation 21 and 22 joy, rivers of life, palaces, bejeweled, life with the Lamb, eternal. So with earthly pleasures, enjoy them, relish them, but just give yourself a quick reminder of prayer. Lord, and it will be greater. That's a great thing. Lord, and it will be greater. You know, uh, beauty of creation around you, the thrill of a, of a date gone well, the comfort of a spouse's presence, the seeing your child accomplish something great. You know, these are things that make you so happy. Uh, your favorite snack or meal. And Lord, it will be greater. Remind yourself. Let it be a hint pointing to future joy. Now, secondly, keep sniffing the inner cesspool. It's a fun one. All right, keep sniffing the intercessible. The more you seek God, friends, the more you grow in the Lord, the more aware, the more sensitive you become to sin in your life, to rebellion, to the big no in your heart. And two great things come out of this. First, you become more aware. But secondly, you get more tired of the bag of flesh you carry around. All right, but just the, the weight of that flesh. And I'm not, you know, I'm not calling anyone obese here. I'm just saying the flesh we carry around. How is that great? Why would, you know, how is it great to get tired of your flesh? Well, Paul thinks it's pretty great. He said in Philippians 1 this, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ that's better. That's far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary to be with you. Isn't that a great, now that's a great pastor right there. Look, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'd much rather be with Jesus right now. But since it's necessary, I'll stay with you. But Paul was, was very clear. It's far better to be with Christ. He says it similarly in this great passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4. For we know that if the tent, which is your earthly home, this body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we might not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. We're burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. In other words, he's talking about the idea of being complete here. But that we should be further clothed, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul says it here in this passage, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's true that right now your life is hidden with Christ in God, but it also looks forward to the day when your life is no longer exposed to the dangers, the uncertainty, the decay, the sin of life. That's going to be joyous. Remember the bag of flesh you carry around. Let that be a reminder of future joy when you're frustrated by sin. Okay. Second thing here, be more quick with these. Be grateful. How do you love your future with Christ? Be grateful for what is not in your future. Paul tells us in verses 8 through 9. Oh, excuse me, verses 6 through 7. I'm, I'm wrong on that. My bad. Verse 6 through 7. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So look at, look, he applies this to Christians. You once were this way. And there is still, for many, a wrath of God to come. Now, many people ask and often got caught up in the question when they hear about wrath, is God's wrath really fair? Is God's wrath really a fair and just punishment for a sin? But it's, it's the right degree of justice compared to what we consider otherwise just. To the justice we all agree we need in our world. I'll give you an example. Suppose a middle school student you know, punches another student and kind of gets him in the gut. What happens? That student is given a detention, right? A, a, a punishment of some sort. Now, suppose during the detention, the boy punches a teacher. What's going to happen? The student's going to be probably suspended from school for a long time. Suppose on the way home, that same boy punches a policeman on the nose. All right, what's going to happen? He's going to go to jail. Suppose then some years later, that same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the president of his country. And as the president passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the president. What happens? He's probably shot dead. In every case, the crime is precisely the same. The intent, the same. But the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it's committed. What comes from sinning against God? What comes from throwing a haymaker at God? Everlasting destruction. God of the universe. Holy, perfect, amazing, brilliant, glorious God. But justice doesn't apply to him? No, he is a just God. 
Paul says, on account of persisting and indulging in sensuality, the future for most is the wrath of God. And it is a sad description, a horrific description. Zephaniah 1, 15-16, prophet Zephaniah, predicts it this way, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin, a day of devastation, a day of darkness, of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against lofty battlements. We've got a little taste of these wrath, of this wrath throughout our history, history of mankind, I mean. that You know, we see in Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah comes to mind. Burning sulfur. In the book of Acts, we get the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Yahoo lie. Who are confronted with sin. And after lying, confronted with sin, drop dead. We've seen it in our lifetime through all kinds of disasters, natural disasters. And I'm not saying that every natural disaster is God's judgment, but we are naive to think that none are. Because God can't sometimes seem otherwise to get our attention. In fact, when the Bible and Christians talk about signs of the end times and all these disasters happening, they're just talking about these little hints and little warnings that increase, trying to get our attention, increasing until his fury comes in full force. So the encouragement here, think about your worst. You want to think about the future with Jesus? Think about your worst experience. No one wants to go there, but think about your worst experience, vision, nightmare, and imagine an eternal that. Jesus suffered your worst nightmare times eternity to deliver you from that future. Finally, how do you love your future with Jesus? Make a hard choice now to have a future later. Paul talks about it in verse 5, putting to death. And again in verse 8 in terms of putting these things away. I remember when I was younger, um, I had this trunk. For some reason, when I went to summer camp, I took a trunk. I didn't take a suitcase. I need to ask my parents about that. I, I would take this trunk to summer camp, and otherwise, this trunk was stuck in a closet near my bedroom. And one day, I was, uh, I was cleaning something up, and to finish quickly, I just stuck a bunch of, of my toys and my clothes in that trunk, but especially a lot of things that, that I liked. And, well, I had a friend over who found the key to that trunk. Right? And while I was outside for a moment, he managed to lock that trunk and pretended to throw away the key. I don't know where it is. He said, you know, at first, you know, ah, <laughs> right, this sort of thing. And then get a little disappointed, which turns to kind of ticked off and infuriated. But he insisted, no, I really threw away the key, man. Some of us have clung so closely to our system, our self-made religion, because we cling so closely, indulging in sensuality, self-pleasure, and verbal sin. It becomes an idol, something we don't put away. If someone threatens your idol, first get disappointed, then you get ticked, and you get infuriated. Someone puts your idol away or attempts to, Gets us angry. This happened in Acts 19. Paul persuaded a number of people in the city of Ephesus to trust Jesus Christ. But in this city, the worship of Artemis took place. All right? They had this big shrine, and 
Outside the shrine, people made a lot of money from it. All right? Basically, they had their cheap Artemis souvenir set up. All right? you know, maybe it was the, the you know, three t-shirts for $10. <laughs> I saw Artemis things. Or maybe you get your, your, your 10 postcards for 50 cents. I don't know what it was. But people were just out there selling stuff. But when Jesus came into people's lives and transformed their lives, they didn't want anything to do with Artemis. And so a man named Demetrius, he was among those selling these souvenirs, and he gathered his fellow profiteers, and he foments anger. It starts a riot. People don't like you messing with their idol, with their system. So you have to threaten your idol. You have to threaten your own system. You have to kill it. Not just put it away, not just lock it away, but throw away the key. Otherwise, by keeping it around, keeping it in the closet, keeping it in the trunk, keeping the key, we're constantly tempted, aren't we, to play with it, fool around with it, keep it around just in case I want to return to such things. If your system is a self-made religion producing this continual sensual and verbal indulgence that you cling to, friends, kill it before it kills your future. Let's pray. Father, it's been a challenging scripture this week. If nothing else, because its application is so foreign to us. Thinking about our future. Many of us here, Lord, are, are, are young yet. But you call it the key, Lord. Here Paul is saying, here's how. If you've been raised with Christ, if you're no longer a part of this system, if you're no longer guided by it, if your life is no longer determined by it, seek the things that are above, not the things on earth. Your life that's hidden with Christ, the time when you'll one day appear in glory. So God, as hard as it is, help us think about our future. Help us spend time being grateful about what's not in our future, that we, through Christ, can avoid the future wrath coming. Finally, help us kill our system now so it doesn't ruin our future. We pray all this soberly, Lord, but in Jesus' name, and with the encouragement that through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit he has given us, you can help us kill these things. You can help us overcome by your power. And we ask that it would be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen.